we're jumping back into the book of Hebrews. We're on the home stretch. We have spent quite a long time. Don't amen that. This is a good book. Uh, we are in chapter 13. We've got two at most three uh, messages after this as we close out the book. But we're being, we will be in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6 today. And we will see that Jesus is enough. Remember, and the context is important every single time we preach through the word, but it's really important tonight because uh, the church, the Hebrews that this is written to, they are persecuted. Some of them have been in prison. Um, They've taken uh, a lot of heat for their faith and they're discouraged. But what happens in that, and the author is addressing this, what happens in that is you get lonely. And when you get lonely, you need to be reminded over and over and over about the presence of Christ and the community that we call the church that affirms that presence. I don't know if any of y'all have ever been lonely by sticking your neck out for the faith, by doing something that uh, you knew would take a step of faith for Christ, and, and immediately it just felt like there was repercussions and you were feeling lonely. So the reminder tonight is that Christ is enough and that he is there. We will, at the end of tonight, see in verses 5 and 6 that it says, the Lord, his presence is with us. And he's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. And so you need to know the back end of this message to know this is the context of everything we're talking about tonight. Because John Piper, he describes the book of Hebrews as a landscape full of peaks and valleys. And the peaks, well, let's start with the valleys. The valleys are, are times of doctrine and theology and foundational promises that we see in scripture and you know hebrews is just flooded with that it's the good stuff it's the why behind we why we act different why we live different and so you got to have that theology you got to know the beautiful truths of the gospel because that's what's going to change our minds and our hearts in christ but then on the flip side in this landscape there's peaks and these peaks are where the believers apply they stand out amongst the nations they apply what they're learning in the valleys and so this is where we stand and let our light shine so that all nations might see our good works and glorify our father in heaven and so uh tonight and as we walk through the rest of chapter 13, we're going to see what it looks like to be on the peaks a little bit. This is the application stuff. And the topics range in great diversity. Uh, Tonight we're going to be talking about everything from uh, sexual intimacy, money, uh, even strangers and how to be hospitable. I mean, in six verses, we go uh, through quite the gamut of topics. And so we're going to walk through each one and see how we stand out uh, as followers of Christ. And so As a reminder for you, the question I think that would be good to ask yourself as you walk through this, keeping all of the book of Hebrews in context, is how are these truths of the gospel? Okay, we've been doing this like six months. How are these truths of the gospel actually changing the way you live? Like, Are you the same person you were six months ago when we started this? Are you finding your mind being renewed and transformed at all? And so the author is going to give us a few different areas in our lives that are going to look different when Jesus gets a hold of you and he changes your life. So Jesus is enough. Let's jump on in. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Okay, let's stop here. First thing we see, 
is love is hospitable. So right off the bat, you've got verse 1 that, that is concise and to the point. Let brotherly love continue. So that's the foundation for this. This is the, the, the foundation. Keep in mind what we talked about last week, uh, ending with um, that our God is a consuming fire and almost the intimidating, the sovereignty, the majesty of God in that. And it said that we should, in verse 28 of chapter 12, that we should worship God, that we should be grateful to him. And this is what it looks like. And the first thing, right after he says, our God is a consuming fire, he says, let brotherly love continue. The Greek word for that brotherly love is actually Philadelphia. Does that sound familiar? The city of brotherly love. And so this phileos, this this, this love that we have for one another is sibling-like. It's the way that we feel towards our brothers and sisters in the faith. And that's the foundation for everything else we're going to talk about tonight is what does this love look like. Because you could say you love the church. You could say you love each other. Um, but it's got to look like something. Because when we say family around here, we mean family. Now, we all got backgrounds of different family uh, experiences but we mean when you go deeper in Christ, your love for the church, for the brothers and sisters around you should deepen as well. And that's not, that's not just uh, church speak. And that looks like something. You're going to greet them. You're going to talk to them. You're going to welcome them. It's going to look different as you grow in your faith. Some would just say, man, the more you get into the church stuff, you just get bogged down with church activities and all. And you could do that, but you can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. You're going to look different as you grow in your faith it's going to look different in your relationship with the church you're going to be welcoming them into your home you're going to be doing different things that you didn't at the beginning and so we have this brotherly love for one another then it says in verse two that we got to show hospitality so this is what love looks like it looks hospitable and, and it says to strangers so verse one says this is we got brotherly love, so it starts with brothers. Verse 2 says strangers. We're going to see in verse 3 that it's talking about prisoners, so it goes from one to the another. This is how you should respond to one another. Show hospitality, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Many of you remember back in Genesis 18 when Abraham, he comes across three guys. He shows hospitality before he even fully realizes who they are. Two of them end up being angels. The third one is Christ, Jesus in the Old Testament. And so he entertained them, but the word here for angel, it's not just a spiritual being, it's messenger, okay? So when we talk about entertaining angels, could you actually entertain angels by opening up your home to somebody? You could, but the idea that someone who you wouldn't have otherwise talked to or got to know, but through hospitality, you welcome them into your life a little bit, they may very well have a message for you from God. God speaks through people to us. And so hospitality isn't simply, okay, if I neglect it, then I'm just not going to be, um, you know, someone who opens my home to people. No, God's saying, if you neglect it, you might not hear from me as much. I might be speaking to some people to you through them. You've got to be, you've got to be open to that. Hospitality. It's amazing, our views of hospitality. I mean, this is a lost art. I, I could preach on this all night long because God has done a work in my life and Tara's life over the last several years in this. Uh, when we planted in Nebraska, our whole strategy was simply opening up our home and having uh, meals with people and just being hospitable. That was our church planning strategy, and uh, it worked well. It is a disciple-making tool that God doesn't want us to forget about. But even in the Old Testament, you go back and you see it's a commandment. The Israelites were to leave a portion of their field 
left to be harvested, for those who are walking by, that they could take the kernels of grain, that they could eat that. It was commanded that, that people be hospitable towards one another. When I first became a pastor, it blew my mind looking through Timothy and Titus of the biblical qualifications for an elder. You want to know what one of them is? Hospitality. It's a weird biblical qualification. But it's there. Because it's that important. You see, God was saying in the Old Testament, I'm commanding you to be hospitable towards one another. And in the New Testament, because you are a nation unlike any other. Every other nation is going to say, we need to take our own stuff. We need to hoard it. We need to do our own thing. But you take care of strangers. You take care of passerbys. You take care of the foreigner, the alien coming through your land. Because that's what I do. I welcome them in. That's what God does. And so to have, to, to have a, a heart to have a lifestyle that's hospitable isn't just opening up your home. Because that's what you know most of us think. Oh, i got to open my home. I live in an apartment. Psych, ain't going to have to do that. Boom, yeah, I'm great until I'm out of college. I don't have to mess with hospitality. No. It's, a, it's an opening of your heart. It's an opening of your home. And it's an opening of your life to other people. So you can have people in your home all day long, but if you don't let them into your life, is that really hospitable? an opening to all three of those things. But some of us, we, we, we don't even know where to start. We don't know what it looks like. For some of us, we set our standards high because we have this idea that, that being hospitable means that our house has to look perfect, um, that we have to be able to cook just amazing food, and that we have to be able to decorate and all that. And that's wonderful. And Tara and I have come to the place where we appreciate those uh, in our lives and then even us for other people just blessing them with a really nice, clean house. Um, blessing them with really good food. Like that, we, there's a place for that. But if that's what hospi- hospitality always looks like for you, you're probably never going to do it because it's going to be overwhelming. But I don't know how much that really is the thing that ministers to people. Clean house is nice. But sometimes, if that's the main focus, they're going to walk out of your house feeling like they're disconnected to you more than they were before you even invited them because they're like, I don't have a house that nice. I can't clean it that well. I can't cook like that. That was great to be blessed by, but I can't reproduce it. I remember when I was in high school, there was a family. I was, (laughs) by default, uh, part of their family because I I was dating their daughter. But they were a Christian family, and they were one of the first Christian families that I really spent time around. I wasn't a believer, as many of you know. And and, and the the relationship I had with their daughter, um, it was tumultuous at best. I mean, it was up and down and and eventually ended horribly and it just wasn't good. But I remember early on, they took me in to their family and they, they, they let me hang out. They're a ridiculous amount. They had dinner with me. Uh, They invited me into their life over and over. They invited me to church, but I look back and I remember my time around their dinner table far more than I remember going to church with them. And at first it was that typical hospitality thing where it's like, okay, we're going to make something nice for you. Welcome. Good to see you. You're here. But hospitality isn't just a one-time thing. It was over and over and over. Even after we broke up, they still blessed me. They still hung out with me. I thought that was the craziest thing. I thought, okay, you were just being hospitality. You were you had hospitality because I was dating your daughter. Now I'm not. It should be over. But like they kept pouring into me. But want to know what ministered to me the most? was to see this Christian family. One dad is a professor at a university. Mom is just quaint, perfect little volunteering at the Christian school. Kids go to the Christian school. Like, just 
Christians in a box. I mean, like, just, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. What ministered to me the most was when they opened their home to me and I got to see them fight. I got to see them resolve conflict. When I got to see dad come home from work frustrated and what that looked like around the dinner table for people who had Jesus at the center. See, Christians get frustrated. I got to see what it was like when the kids acted up and one would scream and run to their room and dinner got crazy awkward. I got to be in the midst of their turmoil and I got to see what Jesus looked like in the middle of it. See, that's true hospitality. She's a good cook. But letting me into their lives was what really ministered to me the most because I got to see Jesus in the mess. And that's hospitality. I think some of us, we become so incredibly cautious that we've talked ourselves out of hospitality. Because we start to view our home, and you've got to be honest, check your heart. It doesn't matter if you've been in your home for six months or 20, 30 years. We start to view our home as our sacred place. Well, this is my safe zone. I don't, I don't have people over because I, I got everything just the way I like it. When did Jesus ever say, go buy a house and make it your safe zone as if you've got a residence on earth? No, he said, you don't have a home here. Quit trying to make a home where you don't belong. And yet some of us, we wouldn't have anyone over because we just got our stuff the way we like it and, and, and we just wouldn't do it. Some of us, we've talked ourselves out of it because... We read the news and we think anyone we have over, yeah, like, I'll talk to them at cross training, but I'm not going to invite them over because they're probably murderers. They're probably murderers. <laughs> I, re- I saw the news and there was a murder on the news, and then I saw the news before that and there was, like, two murderers in, in Indiana, and I just, all, they're all murderers. I don't want to joke about that. <laughs> I don't want to joke about that, but some of us, we're talking ourselves out because we think somehow people are just going to be crazy. I'm getting in too deep. But let me tell you why hospitality is so important. It's so important because ministry happens over the dinner table. I told you my experience, but there's a, there's a book called A Meal with Jesus. Some of you might have read it by Tim Chester. And he walks through the entire Gospel of Luke and shows how Jesus, the majority of the time, his ministry interactions with people came while eating. That's where he ministered to people. He wasn't called a friend of sinners because he hung out with them playing basketball. He was called a friend of sinners because he had food with them. That's a big deal. Ministry happens over the dinner table. I mean, churches are planted out of this. That's how powerful it is to have a meal with somebody. It shows you've got an open heart. Hospitality is important because you are choosing to minister to someone out of fear of what this relationship might turn into. Hospitality is important because it makes you get out of your comfort zone and stop clinging to the things that are shakable, like your beautiful home and how you got it all arranged, and your insecurities about whether you can cook or what you got to do. It's important because it sanctifies you. You let people into your life a little bit, you're going to see you have way more flaws than you ever realized. But if you let Jesus in the midst of that, he's going to sanctify you. Hospitality is important because it literally shows the gospel. Not only God's open arms to us, but what is Jesus through salvation? What is he inviting us into? A wedding feast? He ain't meeting us at the coffee shop. Jesus said, I'm going to make a room where? In heaven. 
my father's house. We're going to have a dinner, and you can come to the table. Just a heavenly picture on earth. You read this at home by yourself, there's about a 90% chance you just blow right through it. Be hospitable, okay. I'll try not to cut people off in traffic and not be as mean anymore. I'll, like, but no, take it serious. Because I'm telling you what, when gospel intentionality, when gospel intentionality and people who see their callings as making disciples, when it collides with hospitality, there will be an explosion in the kingdom of God. It just happens this way. guys don't seem as excited about how I'm not going to get anyone to invite me over for dinner after that but I'm expecting it I counted how many heads are in the room and so that's how many invitations I'm getting verse 3 moving on so we go from brothers to strangers to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who were mistreated since you also are in the body this is a key phrase right down here well, what do we see here? We see that love is empathetic. Love is empathetic. Just right off the bat, you see that you've got to take this literal. You've got to understand, even though we, uh, we don't have a bunch of people in prison for their faith in America. But it ain't like it's not happening around the world. So the author's saying you need to pray for them. You need to have prison ministries. Because there's some old boys all around here who are in jail right now who have found Jesus. Some of them before jail. Some of them in jail. Some of them ain't until you... Go and preach Jesus to them. And he's saying, don't forget about those people. I don't know if you all remember in Matthew 25, Jesus says a little something about those who are coming into the kingdom of God. He says, those who, who, who fed me, who clothed me, a stranger, who visited me in prison. And then he says, when you did that, you did it to me. You minister to Jesus when you minister to the least of these in hospitality, and, and, and being empathetic to those who are going through hard times. You see, it was rough in a first century jail. Essentially, this is the way it was. It, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't like we have it today. If they didn't have money, and they didn't consider treating prisoners uh, high on their priority list, government-wise, for what they're going to put their money into. So unless you had people to care for you, you weren't getting anything. But you actually, in many cases, could access prisoners like you could bless them they just knew most people don't have people who are going to bless them but christians were different there's a quote from uh, from someone in the first century that says this about a christian who was in jail and says everything else that could be done for him they most devoutly did so a group of believers doing it for this person in prison remember first timothy paul says that onisiphorus uh, onisiphorus he came and was not ashamed of my chains. He ministered to Paul in prison. It was a big deal. Everything else that could be done for him, they most devoutly did. They thought of nothing else. So they were like, oh, we're going to hang out with the Christian who's in jail and then go home and do our thing because we, we did our, our good duty for the day. They thought of nothing else. Orphans and ancient widows. I love how it's ancient widows, not just older. Like Orphans and ancient widows might be seen hanging about the prison from the break of day. Their officials asked the jailers to let them sleep inside with them, and elegant dinners were brought in. Their sacred writings were also read. Like these people were like, one of ours is in jail? 
We're going to go spend time with them, not just for an hour on Tuesday nights in our jailhouse ministry. Like, we're going to go, and we're going we're gonna to spend time. We're going to bring them food. We're going to bless them. We're going to make all the prisoners and the jailers and everyone else say, oh, my, it's better for that Christian to be in jail than it is for non-believers to have freedom. Like, that's a ministry. And he's saying, since you also are in the body. Meaning, if one of us is hurting, we're all hurting. If one of us is going through some junk, we're all going through some junk. This is where, in 2016, our culture in America of independence and doing our own thing, we're kind of part of a church, but we're not. I kind of have my own faith. It's not theirs. Like, that it doesn't gel with first century Christianity. Because you're either part of the church and you're in it and you're going to empathize with those who are suffering or you're not part of the church. And if you're not part of the church, you're not found in Jesus. It's not some organization you get to pick. Well, I like this one in Salina. We got like 92 of them. We can go from here to here to here to here to here. No, there's just the church and you're in it or you're out. But if you're in it, you got to be in it. It was different. You see, to empathize with those who are suffering for the sake of Christ, to empathize for those who are going through hard times, it stands out in a world that at best has gawkers, <laughs> at, at, at worst has gawkers, at best has just good advice. Man, this thinks they're in jail. I wish we could do something for them. At best, you get on 2020. And someone six months down the line sees that maybe your court case wasn't just, and so they're going to pay for uh, a lawyer to go retry this thing, and then it'll be on 60 Minutes a year later, showing how it got reversed. No, like, this is what stands out. If you are, con if you are transformed by Jesus, you're going to view those who are hurting different. You can't just drive by them anymore. I'll tell you what, I'm amazed. I'm amazed, and in a beautiful way, at the the lack of hospital visits I have done as a, as a pastor at Crosspoint. It's not because people don't have babies or go to the hospital. It's because our grow groups, those, those are the people who go. I can't tell you how many times, how many times. This weekend I could give you an example where someone has a child, they, and they had a child like four days ago, and I don't hear about it. No one thinks to even tell me. But the grow group's been there for three out of four days. And they got a meal train set up, and they got it all working. People who have been in the, the, the hospital in Wichita, the whole grow group going down there to see them. Like, I could tell you over and over and over the stories in the last year since I've been here about how the grow group is taking care of the needs of one another because they're family. And we talk about grow groups, like, this is serious stuff. This is why it's so important to be a part of one. It's huge. Like, that blesses me beyond belief. Like, I'm, if, I, if God takes me tonight, y'all might be like, well, someone else is going to have to get up there and rant for a while, but ain't nobody going to be missing my pastoral care. That's kind of beautiful. Because it's not like it's not happening. It's just happening by you guys for one another. And happening by me in my own grow group. This is amazing to see. It's amazing. Because you know when someone's hurting, the first thing they're going to question is where's God? And the church's physical presence and love and hospitality and empathy for them, it doesn't just represent one person loving another. It represents God's presence in their life. 
our grow group, along with another grow group, we've each adopted low-income um, elderly apartment complexes in town. And every month, every two months, we go there and we just serve them. We have game night. We play with them. And sometimes uh, we play games with them. And sometimes we, we question in our minds. We think, gosh, are we really making an impact? It's a presence ministry. And we look for opportunities to share Jesus all the time. But things are happening. We went to one the other day where I walked out and I was like, oh, you know, we brought food in the morning for him. We hung out. Not many hung out. And I just, I asked the guy who's a Christian, who's a manager, and I said, are we doing any good? And he said, Ryan, you don't understand. Last week, one of our ladies went out 20 feet away from here, went out to the garbage can and slipped and fell. And it was so cold and nobody heard her screaming. She died of exposure. 20 feet away from all the other residents. Right here in Salina, Kansas, behind the McDonald's on 9th Street, she just died by the trash can. And he says, you bet you guys just being here and showing that you care for a whole group of people wondering, where is God? They ain't got a bunch of family and friends taken care of, and that's why they're living there to begin with. It's a big deal to not forget about those who are suffering because you represent Jesus' presence in their life. It's a big deal to empathize. Silas, when I come home, he always he always says, Daddy, Daddy, he doesn't care. He doesn't care if I've kissed Tara or talked to her or greeted her or took my shoes off. He grabs my hand and he says, Daddy, play cars. Daddy, play cars. He always wants me to play cars. Non-stinking stop. Cars, cars, cars. And I'm like, oh, I start thinking of excuses about I'm tired and I'll come. And he'll look up at me and he always looks at me with this look of like, are you going to get down and play cars or are you just going to stand up there? And I do everything I can to avoid. Sometimes I'll sit down and I'll say, okay, we can play like this. And he says, Daddy, no, come down here. And then other times I'll, I'll get down and I'll, I'll be like, okay, let's play on your rug. And he has this little rug that's got streets on it. And we play cars. And I'll just lay down kind of like this. And he'll get up and he'll grab my head and he'll say, no, Daddy, sit up. Some of you are like, you're a horrible parent. <laughs> it's making me sad, isn't it? You're empathizing a little bit. But what happens is when I finally sit exactly like he's sitting, he says, he smiles and he says, all right. <laughs> and we start playing cars. And that's what empathy is. For us, it's to be in the exact position that those we're with are in. And some of us tonight were frustrated in our disciple making because we have had our hand reaching down into the pit trying to help people out of it for so long. And, and, and we're irritated with them because they're not learning. They're not changing. Nothing seems to be changing. You tell them about God and they don't want it. And you're frustrated and you're irritated. And God's saying, you know what? You're, you're looking. You're in the garden saying, Father, maybe this isn't your will for me to minister to this person. Maybe take me out. And he's saying, no, you still got to go to the cross. And the cross for you looks like getting down in the hole. You want perseverance. You want endurance. You want to keep on ministering. Don't question it and just pray to God that he'll let you out of this situation. You get down in the hole and you sit with them. You got to finally engage them. And what you've been irritated about this whole time isn't that they don't follow God exactly like you want. It's your posture towards them was one of, I'm going to bend down and pick you up like I'm somebody. Instead of you just getting down like Jesus in Philippians 2 
who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing in the form of a servant to the point of death, death on a cross. And God's saying, you stop looking for ways out. You empathize with them. You get down and sit with them a little bit. Verse 4. This is fun, isn't it? This almost seems random, but it's not. The topic changes again. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Third thing we see is that love is pure. It's the kind of love we get in Jesus is pure. It almost seems, again, out of place to go from, we're talking about uh, brotherly love, okay, hospitality, visiting some folks, okay, now it seems like we're moving, but then it just, out of the blue, seems like now we're talking about physical intimacy. Isn't this, isn't this completely out of the blue? But if you follow the line of thinking, the Hebrews are persecuted, the church is struggling a little bit. And so the author says, let me walk you through this. You guys got to love each other like brothers and sisters. You got to open your home for one another. No doubt they had lost some family members, people who said, you got to get out of our home. So hospitality is a big deal. And for those who are in prison in the church, okay, I'm, I'm writing to y'all. You got to go, you got to go spend time with them. You got to empathize with them. You got to be watching out for one another. And then it seems random, but it's not. Because what happens for those who, who are struggling and they're lonely? They need hospitality. They need empathy. But there's temptations. There's temptations that happen. And people want to compromise because loneliness, it will always, if you don't find that God is enough, if you don't find Jesus enough, loneliness turns to temptation, temptation to compromise real fast. People don't set out to say, I'm going to cheat in my marriage. Or I'm going to be impure physically before marriage. Because you know what? I never heard a sermon on it. No one ever told me about it. So I was just going to do it. Like th- Those generally are not the stories. The stories are, I tried not to. And, and one thing led to another. And I just, I see now how I went little steps. Each a little step, little step, little step. And then I went from here to there. I can't believe it happened. But it happened. Because even when you got that brotherly love, when you got that love for one another, but you got hospitality, you're welcoming people into your life, and then you got you got empathy where you're starting to really relate to one another, sometimes connections are made and lines are crossed. It's not okay. But I'm just saying this verse isn't out of place. Not only that, but it shows it's a slow fade, but there's a deception that Jesus isn't enough. If you, in the moment of loneliness, if you don't feel like Jesus is enough, if you don't understand that and experience that, 
And so he says, first, you've got to honor marriage. Let it be honored, uh, key, by all. So not just those who are married. Let marriage be honored by all. To honor it means that we have a high view of it, that we respect it. We know in our culture, marriage, <laughs> I don't know. This world's big and history has been long, so I don't want to speak in generalities. But it's, I don't know if it's ever been like this in America that we have degraded marriage to the extent that we have right now. And I don't have to go into the context of that. But our view of marriage is, is lowering day by day. And the author's saying the church can't do that because what happens is if you first start with a low view of marriage, then let me tell you what happens next. The marriage bed, the chances of it becoming defiled goes up. you got to watch it. It doesn't become defiled because we just stumbled into it. It became defiled because we don't have a high view of it and we weren't protecting it. We weren't looking out for it. It skyrockets the chances. And when it says, when it says undefiled, it means pure, it means untainted. There's a reason way back in the Old Testament, Moses said that there's one reason you can get divorced. And that is adultery. He's not saying you need to get divorced if that happens. But he said, yeah. God said, yeah. Because when it gets defiled, you can't just change that. I'm not saying there's not healing. We're going to get to that. But that there's no going back. Like that changes things. That's why this is such a big deal among other things. And then third, God's going to judge those who don't take this serious. Sexually immoral. You'll see all throughout the New Testament. You'll see, um, it might say fornication. It might say uh, immoral. The bottom line is, it's a whole bunch of different sexual immorality stuff crammed into one term. And it's everything out of God's design for marriage. Outside of that, could be premarital, physical intimacy. Could be outside of the bounds of marriage. It could be, uh, it could be anything. Everything you find uh, that's outside of that is thrown in. So marriage, we see, though, it's a, it's a reflection. It's a reflection of Jesus and the church, Okay? So I'm preaching at a wedding. I'm talking to them about how this is reflecting Jesus and, and the church. And we know there's purity in him. And we know that, that marriage is going to show his heart, God's heart. You want to see heaven on earth. Look inside a godly marriage and home. Look at, look at that family structure and how they interact. Like Jesus, you've got to be in the midst of that. But when he is, it's a beautiful thing. And it shows that Jesus and the church, you see in Romans 8, ain't nobody going to separate us. And marriage being a reflection of Jesus is meant, obviously, not to be separated. Now, let's talk. When this kind of stuff gets brought up in the church, what's the church known for? It seems like there's a lot we could say, but two things that right off the top of my head, it seems like we're known for with this topic is number one, <laughs> if you're going to have a sermon in this, someone is going to quote, is going to quote all kinds of divorce rates. 
and how the church is this compared to the world, and it's blah, 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 blah. But that's going to be in there. And more one is going to be how leaders, Christian leaders, have fallen into temptation and immorality. Like those, just, those just seem to hang. We're known for so many things here. But I, I, I think it's time, I think it's got to be time that the church is becoming more known for how we fight for each other's purity. We fight for each other's marriages. That it is all of us in this together, raising our view of it, fighting for one another, making sure we're not doing stupid stuff, making sure that we're protecting each other, making sure that we are proactive and not reactive. You want to see where, where people fall from, they go from temptation, which isn't the sin, into the actual sin. They, they fall, and you'll see so often it's reactive. Well, I just kind of found myself in this place, and they were there, and we were here, and it wasn't just one thing. It was, uh, we were together a lot of times, and at first it wasn't bad, but then after a while it got bad. And it's just reactive. We're walking blindly down a road, and we're like, well, I don't know how this happened. All of a sudden, it was midnight on a Friday night, and we were hanging out, and and it's like, what? <laughs> There's like 600 proactive things you could have done to make sure you ain't hanging out alone on Friday night, midnight. Like, we, we could do stuff before there, huh? We, we, we could do it. You don't have to be in that place. I mean, here at the church, just like hopefully any church, we're going to have rules. If, if there's a female in here, it's not that we don't trust them, but we're going to have doors open. We're going we're gonna to get on there. We're going to say to the other guy, there's got to be other guys in the building. We're going to say, hey, randomly stop by whenever you want. Just check in and see how things are. You keep, you keep doors open. You, keep, you don't ever ride in a vehicle alone with someone of the opposite sex. It just doesn't happen. They need to go to the emergency room, call an ambulance. <laughs> but you've got you to fight for it in advance. It's not that we don't trust each other. It's, that it's without a hint. We've got to be. We've got to be above reproach. We've got to fight for each other. We've got to fight for each other. I remember I got in trouble, um, not for this. This is a bad way to start a story, uh, for sexual immorality. Let me, let me back up. Uh, one time, early in ministry, we found ourselves, Tara and I, we found ourselves ministering to a whole lot of ladies, ladies who were anywhere from 30 to, to 50. They generally had families. They had husbands, a lot of cases, and and there was common themes, unfortunately, that their husbands were not spiritually there. Like, they just didn't want to have nothing to do with church. And so we would have the kids and mama coming to church each week. And that was who we ministered to. And I was just blown away at the amount of ladies we did. Well, you preach, you preach, you preach, you preach, you preach, you preach. And eventually you start to build credibility. And you start to have relationships with these people. And I remember it got uncomfortable because I, I would be there on a Sunday morning before or after service. And ladies would come up to me. And, and they would, and it was in a friendly way, but they would ask me, um, because their husbands weren't leading spiritually, they'd ask me questions about their family and how they should react to different things and just general ministry stuff. But it was uncomfortable because I got to the point where I was like, even though your husband isn't the spiritual leader of the household, I can't be that for you. Like, you can't just make me, as the pastor, your husband. And they wouldn't have said that was happening and I might not have in the moment, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this is just uncomfortable. And what I started doing was this. I started to not look them in the eyes. Like, they would ask me a question. We'd be talking in the foyer, so there'd be people around. But it, I would, a lady would ask me, and I would just, I'd just do this number. Well, you know, here's some suggestions on things. You can follow Jesus and Jesus and Jesus and Jesus. Like, I, I think you're still there, right? You know, like, I would not look them in the eyes. And it was kind of just a, a tactic that I had in my mind. I, I don't know. It just came 
because I felt uncomfortable. And I still, to some degree, not as much, but I still struggle with not being able to look people in the eyes because of that's just ingrained in my brain now. And so, um, so if you guys are hating me during a sermon, don't worry, I'm not seeing your faces. So it's just all blurry. Anyway, um, so I remember then a couple of them started to get disgruntled because we were preaching, we were preaching Jesus, and I remember thinking, okay, eventually um, this could be a bad thing because it's shown in our culture as an, an uh, disrespect if you don't look someone in the eyes. And I thought maybe this could eventually be an issue. And I, I thought, though, you know what? If there's a group of people, and I know these ladies are struggling with the fundamental question we all have to answer, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? I got I to make sure we're not connecting in any way we shouldn't. Tara knew about this. We talked about it. But the day finally came where a couple of them uh, got ticked off. And they said, why doesn't Pastor Ryan look us in the eyes when we're talking to him? And they caused a stir. And they got themselves so riled up and ticked off that they were going to leave the church. And I let them. And I didn't stand up for myself. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't come to my own defense. I just let them. They didn't know I was doing it for their own good. But I'm not going to go say, hey, you know what? Now let's, let's look at each other. Just connect with each other there. Let me look into your soul and you can stay in the church. This will be wonderful. Like, I'm not doing that. Like, if you're going to be here, we're just not going to have that kind of connection. And it was awkward. It was weird. It's what happened. But I knew this. I knew that even young in ministry, that if people can't answer this, that Jesus is enough, if they can't fully believe that, then one of the primary things they're going to have a chance of falling into is sexual immorality. And you say, Ryan, why would you even think that? Because our culture, when we don't have a proper understanding of God, there ain't no way we're going to have a proper understanding of this stuff. And what we try to seek and find in this stuff is the stuff that we should only be seeking and finding in God. And so if there is, <laughs> if you look at all of the motivations that some of us have for some of, uh, if we fall into these temptations, look at it. We try to what? You could rifle them off. Try to find our value in other people by this stuff. We try to find affection. Men want to find affirmation. Oh, I'm a man. Men want their, their needs met. Sometimes ladies find their identity, their value. I'm generalizing here. This is men and women. Affirmation, acceptance, approval, comfort, all kinds of stuff that Jesus is standing back there saying, you can't find what you're looking for there. And if you go into marriage looking for those things, you're destined for disaster because you can only find comfort and acceptance and approval and affirmation, the stuff that you really, you can only find it in Jesus. And when you find it in him, you look at the other stuff in a healthy way. And so if you're here tonight and you're thinking, you know what, Uh, maybe I'm not married. Um, Do I have a a healthy perspective of this stuff? Do Do I believe that Jesus is enough? If you can boldly say to yourself, I can wait. I can wait because I'm finding what I need in Jesus. And if he sends somebody, I can wait. You're on the right path. And if there's anyone in here tonight, and there's got to be, who have fell into these temptations and fallen into sin, if you find yourself with these immoralities, you need to know there is healing. 
There is one that you can live in who has purity unlike anything you ever could have earned or kept up on earth yourself. And you need to know, I'm telling you this because you, some of you know it. You need to know. You need to know that there's forgiveness. But you got to take that forgiveness. There's a whole bunch of forgivenesses out there that are hard to accept for ourselves, right? And there's maybe none harder than forgiveness in this area. You got to trust that God wants to forgive you. It's there. And last but not least, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money. So this is this is on us. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we're getting into a bunch of quotes. One from uh, Psalms 118, I believe. One from Joshua. There's several different quotes mixed together here from the Old Testament. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hmm. That's powerful stuff. That's good stuff. The last thing we see is obviously Jesus is enough. We're talking about contentment. We're talking about the love of money. Remember, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It is the love of it. Why? Because it never stops. You never get enough. It always compels you to compromise. And it's a bottomless pit. And there's a bunch of people in this room, I love you. There's a bunch of people in this room that are probably headed down that path and don't even have a clue they really are. Because it's so common, accepted, and exalted in our culture that some of us are driving ourselves crazy trying to get another dollar. Trying to get a little bit better career. I'm not saying it's bad to have a better career, but I'm telling you some of us might have motivations that aren't super healthy. Because when do you ever have enough? When do you ever have enough? Let me ask you this. What are your goals for your career, for finances in your household? Ask that. If you can't answer that, there's a good chance you're just going with the flow. If you can't tell me that you sat down, you thought about it, how in my career, how and financially can like I just honor God? that I don't just jump into the rat race of the American dream and just try to make as much as I can and, and have as many toys as I can. How, if you don't know what you're trying to accomplish through your career and through finances, you're probably just going with the flow. And that's scary. Tara and I had to sit down early on and say, you know what, I had, I had a small business, she was a nurse, we could have made money, we could have paid our house off quick, and we had to talk at the very beginning of marriage. What is the purpose of this whole money stuff? Like, what, what is it? What are we going to do with it? What, do we just make as much as we can? And we said, there's two things we, we want to do. Number one, we want to make sure we're not in debt. Number two, we want to bless others when God says bless others. We want to make sure there's never an excuse for us that if God says, I want you to give to him, to her, this missionary, this person, this per like that I'm not sitting there saying, well, I just spent it all on stupid stuff. So that means in order to get from out of debt to we can bless others doesn't mean we got to work harder and, and have the best money-making career out there. It just means you got to be smart. you got to be good stewards. you got to have a little bit of a game plan. And 
And ever since we first got married, every single year we have made less money and we have been financially better off than the year before. I don't know about y'all, but the culture I grew up in was the point of life is to see how many four-wheelers you could buy. I grew up in small-town Kansas. You guys know that. How many four-wheelers you can buy, how many how many boats, how many um, just nice stuff you can buy. That was, that was the best life Randolph, Kansas had to offer me. Like, that was the best. I remember at the age of 16 out there trying to sell my Camaro so I could get a four-wheeler and that was better than my Camaro and now I got a big truck and like this stupid little world I was in, I wasn't even out of high school and I was playing that game. Like, that's the best life has to offer. But I can tell you this, there is so much freedom. I'm not saying I don't get caught up in it once in a while. There's so much freedom though in saying, I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. Now, here's the thing. Some of you are like, yeah, I'm content with what I have. I can tell you that right now because I'm preaching the word of God and I'm feeling the Holy Spirit. I'm all riled up. But how am I going to feel in the morning? Am I going to still be as content? Because sometimes I get to dreaming about living out in the country. I get to dreaming about a few of those toys. You've got to remind yourself daily that Jesus is enough. You see, if you don't want to try to find everything in material possessions, but you want to be content with what you have, it's not a coincidence. The author then reminds us by saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When you've got the presence of God in your life, you are going to find it is so much better. I, I, can, I can view the stuff God has given me in a healthy way and appreciate it and just own it without it owning me because I got what I need in Jesus. But you've got to have that. And it says, what can man do to me? What can man, the Lord is my helper. What's the worst they can do? Jesus said, they can kill you. They can kill you. But what can they do? I'll tell you what, you in this culture, you want to live counterculture. You want to get out of the rat race we're talking about. You want to see that American dream and say, yeah, it's great. I love being American, but I can't just have that as the vision for my life. I got I to get, get what's important. You're going to have some people who ain't going to like it. You have some people who are going to claim you are as a failure. You have some people who are going to think you punked out because by you not jumping into what they're jumping into, they think, you know what, you think you're better than us? You got this whole Jesus thing, the spiritual stuff. You go to church. Nah, you're just not smart enough to get a better job. You're you're just not, you fill in the blank. Maybe even some of your family is going to say that. But Jesus is better. Over these last six months, like, is that, is that sinking in? Does anybody in this room still question, do you think, I don't know if Jesus is better? The church needed to hear it. Like, he's not going to leave or forsake you. We need to hear it. You've got to believe that. When you believe it, you're going to experience it. And we've got to make sure this week in our disciple making as we minister to others that we don't simply tell them not to do bad stuff. Not to stick out and stand out by the way we view these different topics just because it's what we should do, even though that in and of itself might be good enough motivation. But you tell them there's an alternative. And it's that Jesus is enough. Because that's what they really need.
as we win. Let's pray.